1: and in a matter of, I don't know, a couple of minutes or something, I turned around and he wasn't in the shop anymore. And I walked out of the shop to look for him and I could not see him anywhere. And then around the corner came these two chaps and they asked me my name and they said, we have some papers for you and we have taken your two boys from school and we've got the other boy and there are some papers for you. And from then on, I was alone.
0: Welcome to Real Faith, conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through, helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life, and real faith with Eric Scadabo. Gary Adkins is the author of the book,
2: Thank You, Lord, an autobiographical account of his triumphant journey after losing custody of his children and experiencing homelessness. He joins us today via the telephone from his home in Cooper Petey, South Australia. Gary Atkins, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's uh, good to have a chance to talk.
2: Glad to have you with us. And unfortunately, you've gone through a number of challenges in your life.
1: Well, I suppose you could say unfortunately, but when one looks back, Mm -hmm. you could almost say it was fortunate because there's a lot of growing and experience and changes that have to happen when some unpleasant things happen. So, in one way, it's unfortunate. In another way, it's good.
2: Well, we're going to find out about some of those challenges that you've gone through and the good that's come from those challenges. Let's go all the way back to your childhood. You were born and raised in Melbourne. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Melbourne, and uh, we lived in a few places after that, uh, West Gippsland, and then we came to South Australia.
2: And then eventually you trained to be a teacher?
1: Yeah, I trained to be a teacher. I did a two-year course, which was the minimum requirement, and then I had an appointment. And I spent four years uh, as a teacher.
2: And then eventually you married in 1971?
1: Uh, Yes. I guess that's when it was, a long time ago now.
2: (laughs) Okay, and tell us uh, about your wife and your three kids.
1: Well, um, when our first child was born my wife got postnatal depression and which developed into what they call paranoid schizophrenia, which was uh, a very strange thing for me. I knew knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it, uh, affected her life and we went on to be married for about nine years, during which time uh, we had three sons. But nearly every year, uh, my wife, my ex-wife would be in the in the mental hospital for you know, a month or so, and then a lot of heavy medication.
2: And meanwhile, for yourself, you stopped being a teacher and started to be a folk singer.
1: Yes, I liked uh, writing poetry, and then I put some music to it, and uh, I used to do some singing in the coffee lounge, and uh, it developed into another friend asked me if we could, practice to do some singing Australian folk songs and and tour in the schools mainly but we did that for a year and then I needed to get extra income because I'd started a family so then I went off on my own then and uh, I did it for another six years and in the summertime I used to grow gherkins for a pickle company.
2: Wow so you were successful enough as a folk singer to pretty much make your living at that.
1: Yes, I was uh, one of the few professional folk singers in Australia in the 70s. I did over 1,000 one-man concerts in that time, in the daytime, and then I did, um, I did national TV and radio and live broadcasts and recorded things. And
2: now, that had to be somewhat of a challenge that you're on the road while you have a wife who has some mental health challenges, and you have three boys.
1: Yes, it was a big challenge. We eventually had to um, stop uh, just living in a motorhome. Well, it wasn't even a motorhome. It was just a Volkswagen Transporter that I converted. So we started to live in a house after that.
2: Now, now, just wait a second. For a while, you lived in a mobile home? All of you?
1: Well, it wasn't even... It was a motorhome, but it was just a Volkswagen Transporter, which I built some furniture into, and uh, that was our home, yes.
2: Wow, so kind of a nomadic life.
1: Oh, on the road all the time. That was the only way you could make a living.
2: Oh, so I thought you went on the road and left them at home somewhere, but they were with you.
1: Well, they used to travel with me until we started renting a house, and then sometimes I would go away. We bought another car, and I would go away, and um, they would stay at home, and I'd go away for maybe one or two weeks at a time every month or so and otherwise we'd be I'd be working from home in the daytime
2: Okay, and then you were able to put a deposit down on a 60 acre block of land?
1: Yes, it was a private mortgage. The owner financed the mortgage and that was a vacant block of land and I started to build a house there
2: So you kind of settled your family there?
1: Yes, we uh, we were under a bit of a strain I guess because we had no power and no water and uh it became too much of a strain, so um, i I started renting again,
2: okay, so it's kind of hard to keep up the mortgage payments.
1: well, with my wife's sickness, it became pretty well impossible to um to make those commitments to go away all the time and so I had to I just had to stop doing that and once that happened, my income was greatly reduced, and we, we couldn't pay for the mortgage, we couldn't pay for a high purchase car and we were in really serious trouble.
2: Mm. And with her mental health challenges were there any experiences, any negative experiences?
1: Oh, it's it's such a long time ago but all I can say is if anybody knows anything about living with a mentally sick person it it has an effect on you uh, Mm. because they're always thinking negatively and, and, and not able to uh, look after themselves, yeah, and they think strange things. It's quite a strain.
2: And as you mentioned, then you were not feeling comfortable leaving your wife and three kids to go on the road to uh, do the folk singing.
1: Well, it was just, in the end, it was just impossible. We we couldn't cope like that. I had to, I just had to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Then I started to do work at home and just be an odd job man.
2: Okay, and turning to your faith life, did you grow up raised in the church?
1: Yes, I, I grew up in uh, a Methodist church. We went to Sunday school every Sunday, but it was just like a <laughs> just like a club, I suppose. Mm. And there wasn't really any. There was no talk at home about things of faith. Just how to be a good person. We were familiar with uh, Bible stories, but as far as faith, you know, believing in in Christ as the Son of God who died for my sins and everybody's sins and rose again. That was not an issue in our house. It was never discussed.
2: Mm-hmm. And then for yourself personally, in 1980, you had a, an experience?
1: Yes, I was at the point in my life where this mental sickness of my wife and the, the mortgage default, and I wasn't feeling very strong. And I thought, well, all, all this time in my life, I've relied on myself. And where am I now? I'm, I'm virtually finished. And I was challenged to believe in Christ, and I said yes. And that was the beginning of a new life for me.
2: So you put your faith in Jesus Christ, became a born-again Christian in 1980. Then what happened next in your life?
1: Well, I hadn't been to church for, oh, 20-odd years or something. So we tried to find a church, but we just didn't seem to get it. And, and uh, then, then I um, went to a Christian coffee lounge, and I told the people in there how I used to be a folk singer and, and they said, oh, come to our church and bring your guitar. So I went to the church with my guitar and they got me to play along with the band and then I finished up. I was there every, every Sunday and after a while I was there two or three nights during the week and that was all around about the time when I was alone in my life, uh, when the government moved into my family life. So that provided me with uh, some uh, like an uh, you know a, a surrogate family or whatever you might call it a substitute family in the church
2: well let's uh, talk about that how did you become alone
1: uh, with my wife's sickness um, she used to go to her mother's place a lot and sometimes she'd take the boys with them and I so it wasn't unusual for them to be there for a weekend or anything like that but one time when she went there and I was looking after the three boys and I sent two of them off to school, and the third one, he was about two years old then, and I was running a part-time music business in a, in a rented apartment. And I took him there with me, and I happened to turn away from him. And in a matter of, I don't know, a couple of minutes or something, I turned around and he wasn't in the shop anymore. And oh, I walked wow. out of the shop to look for him, and I could not see him anywhere. And then around the corner came these two chaps and they asked me uh, my name and they said we have some papers for you and we have taken your two boys from school and we've got the other boy and there are some papers for you and from then on i was alone
2: so who took your
1: children they were social workers
2: and what was the grounds that they were saying they had the right to take your sons
1: well uh, i had to sit down in my shop and read the papers to find out what, they had, what right they had to do that because I couldn't understand how anybody could do that. Mm-hmm. And then I read the papers and found out that everything previously had been through a court process and they had been acting under instructions from a, a family court judge to, um, supposed to be they're supposed to ask me to return the children to their mother, but they didn't even ask me, they just took them. Oh, okay. And that was uh, perfectly within their rights because the the court had assessed that I was uh, um, not a person that had any possibility of looking after children, that I was not a very good father, that I wasn't a provider, and uh, so they uh, just did what they were told to do. They took the children.
2: Now, we should back up a little bit, and as I understand it, unbeknownst to you, your wife... Had filed some court proceedings, is that right?
1: Yes, that's uh, a normal kind of thing that happens with this uh, thing called the family court. Uh, one spouse can uh, get an affidavit signed, uh, their statement, and they present that to the court. And they can also ask that the other spouse is not present when the when the judge listens and and ask about the affidavit and they can ask for the custody of the children and they can ask for a restraining order on the spouse and the judge has the power to say I will give you all those things and we'll tell the other spouse by a form of uh, a letter and uh, that's how it all happens.
2: Our guest today is Gary Atkins from Cooper Pedy in South Australia. He's the author of the book Thank You, Lord, an autobiographical account of his triumphant journey after losing custody of his children and experiencing homelessness. We'll find out more of his story when we return right here on Real Faith.
0: The Word for Today is Australia's most widely read daily devotional. Designed to give you practical teaching to keep you focused on your relationship with Jesus. Read it online or subscribe to the free printed edition at thewordfortoday.com.au You're listening to Real Faith. Conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au. Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au.
2: Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo, and today we're chatting with Gary Atkins, who's joining us via the telephone from his home in Cooper Pedy in South Australia. He's the author of the book, Thank You, Lord, an autobiographical account of his triumphant journey after losing custody of his children and experiencing homelessness. As we heard before the break, suddenly his wife had left him, his children had been taken from him, and he found himself all alone.
1: Yes, absolutely alone.
2: And then you also lost your home. How did that happen?
1: Well, this um, 60-acre block we had... I was unable to service the mortgage on that. I had enough money to pay the rent on the cottage we were living in, but the um, the mortgage on the sixty-acre block of land, I wasn't able to service that. And I, I um, tried to sell it. I put it in the hands of an agent, and he um, he found a, a buyer who turned out to be uh, a bogus buyer. And by the time that was all sorted out, the mortgagee said, "Well, you you forfeited." all your money uh, that you paid me as a deposit and you haven't been able to service a mortgage, so we're going to auction your property. So they set up an auction, which somebody else told me about it. So I I went to the auction, it was out in the paddocks in the the Adelaide Hills, where the property was, and nobody turned up to make a bid. And so uh, the property was, um, they said they have to sell it, it has to be disposed of immediately. And so because there were no offers for the auction, a man went to the auctioneer and apparently made an offer, which was apparently successful. And so he got the property, and I lost everything. That was my life's work at the time.
2: Wow. So how were you feeling at this point?
1: <laughs> how was I feeling? Well, all I knew was that uh, God was there, and I was somehow I was going to cope. God was there to help me, and I just have to take one day at a time and trust the Lord to be able to get me through this uh, because I, I had no home to go to. And uh, if it wasn't for some people in the church who found out about it and said I could come and stay with them until I found something else, well, I don't know where I would have finished up.
2: And then eventually you built a home underground in Cooper Petey?
1: Yes, I went to Coober with a job and uh, found out that I could get a lease on a block of land for $40 a year and uh, I could build whatever I liked because there was no local government there. And so I started digging with a pick and a shovel and pulling the dirt away with a wheelbarrow and uh, I made a couple of rooms and I was able to go inside out of the heat. At the same time, I was getting other jobs for a bit of cash money and... uh, Also paying off some debts that um, my wife and I had, um, we'd we'd become responsible for, but I still had to pay off those debts. Mm -hmm.
2: So you were literally living underground in a home that you made by hand.
1: Yes, I'd spend hours and hours a day with a pick banging into the wall. And every day it got a bit bigger. And after a few months, I had enough room in the side of the hill to lay down and go to sleep.
2: Oh, wow. And meanwhile, were you able to see your boys?
1: Well, that was a long process. Uh, It was probably quite a few months after they were taken that I read a scripture about saying that um, there was no law against love. Hmm. And I thought, well, I'm going to break the law, I'm going to break my restraining order, I'm going to break my injunction, and I'm going to go and visit them, which I did. And that was uh, peaceful enough, but it was still breaking the law. And probably a few months after that, I made the acquaintance of a solicitor who um, told me how we could sort all this out and do it properly. So we went through a long process, and every few months uh, I could go and see the boys. And we we had to enter into an agreement, which my lawyer had to negotiate with my ex-wife's lawyer, that I have the children every two weeks for four hours and, and we had to meet somewhere in a public place and they had to, the children had to be handed over to me and I would go off and four hours later I'd bring them back and that would be the end of that for a fortnight. We did that for three fortnights and after that it was um, sufficient evidence to prove that I was not a violent person and I was able to have, have access to my children uh, pretty well at any time but my wife still had the custody so that went through the court and the next thing was to take off the injunction restraining me and that took about another year or more to go through the court probably about once or twice in the year I'd moved to Cuperpede by then Mm -hmm. once or twice a year I might see them for an afternoon and after the injunction was taken off I was able to completely without any restraint from any law office, I could go and see them whenever I liked, and nobody could stop me. And that went on for a while until um, we uh, came to a point where we were all at peace, and uh, that's where we are today.
2: Yes, so that's uh, the good news that now you have peace with your former wife and are able to see your children. Well, they're grown now.
1: Well, my oldest son, he's, he's 45.
2: Yes, he's an adult at this point. Uh, so, But you were able to see them, what, for their uh, the remainder of their teenage years? Is that right?
1: Yes, it took about 10 years before that peaceful situation was arrived at. And by that time, my second son was uh, serving in the Australian Navy, and my youngest son was uh, working in a car factory in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And my oldest son, he was... Uh, He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and he wasn't working and he was living at home sometimes and then sometimes he came and lived with me. So they all grew to adulthood and we we kept up our contact all the time.
2: Now, I just wanted to ask you, when you were going through being separated from your boys when they were young, for months at a time, it sounds like, just what did that do to you?
1: Well, all I can say is if I hadn't been able to talk to the Lord and say, please help me, I don't really know what I would have done.
2: And the name of your book is Thank You, Lord. Why did you choose that title?
1: That's that's my name for it, because um, that's how I coped. I was able to rely on prayer and reading the Bible. Every now and again, I'd come across some scripture which would really highlight my life at the time and give me encouragement. So keep persevering in this long struggle.
2: And the good news is that you were able to reunite with your sons and you're now at peace with your former wife?
1: Yeah, that's the good thing. Yeah, we're all all at peace and uh, we're carrying on in different lives. And thank God it didn't turn out to be an unpleasant experience. In the end, it was uh, a case of enduring a hard time without resorting to any anything ridiculous and mm-hmm. not getting involved in alcohol to drown away my sons or anything like that. So I'm grateful to the Lord that he brought me through that.
2: And then also, financially, not only were you able to make your home, but you were able to kind of keep your head above water and you worked as a dog catcher, a prospector, an opal miner, to name a few of your, the jobs that you've had?
1: Yes, it was all... all um, jobs that didn't require much education, just experience, and that was what the opportunity was. One of the greatest qualifications you need for a job in this place called Coober is you have to be here. <laughs> Once you're here, you're pretty well qualified to do anything.
2: So are you now sitting, talking to us in your underground home?
1: Yes, uh, and I can tell you looking at the thermometer, it is 24 and a half Degrees inside without an air conditioner, and outside, uh, in the shade, it must be at least 36. Wow. And I have another room, which is quite low down in the hill, and it's probably only 20 degrees in there. At night, we have to put a doona on to keep warm by the time the morning comes.
2: So very cool inside. Meanwhile, it's very hot outside.
1: Yes, we we don't need air cons here.
2: Mm -hmm. And so you ended up living in Cougar Petey and you also became for a while the editor of the local newspaper the cooper pd news
1: yes that was a business that i started and uh, fortnightly it went for 3 years and then i stopped doing that and i earned quite a lot of money out of that and that was at the time when the, the demand for iron ore by the chinese was at its height and also the um, the local copper gold mines from oz minerals And Western Plains Resources, they started up. So I had to write a lot about those things. And from that, I learned about mining terms. And then I started looking at the stock exchange. And then then I bought some shares and and I made a a very great profit. And I also bought a block of land in another place. And because of the iron ore demand, uh, some local ore bodies were mined and places... Uh, skyrocketed in prices, and I was able to sell that for a profit of about $40,000. Then I had my newspaper, and then I had my shares. So suddenly I was uh, had a lot of money.
2: Wow. So you've gone from homelessness and being alone to having your boys back, being at peace with your ex-wife, and as you mentioned, you have a home and have some wealth.
1: Yes, I have a home and another freehold property here, and another leasehold property. And then I also own uh, two blocks of land in the Philippines, one with a house I had built for me there.
2: Wow. So any final comments about how the Lord has worked in your life?
1: Well, it's a matter of uh, one day at a time, and the Lord is always there, good times, bad times. I think We, we should thank God for the good things and asking for help through the bad things. And just maintain that daily relationship and keep on reading the Bible every day because that's, uh, what do they call it? The manufacturer's handbook. (laughs) If you want to live life, read the book.
2: That's right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today.
1: Well, that's been a pleasure. Thank you for asking me.
2: Our guest today has been Gary Atkins. He joined us via the telephone from his home underground in Cooper Pedy, South Australia. And the name of his book is called, Thank You, Lord?, And you can find out more information about his book at his website, cooberpedynews.com.au. That's cooberpedynews.com.au.
0: You've been listening to Real Faith. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. Thanks for listening, and we invite you to join us again next time for more conversations about God working in the lives of people who put their faith and trust in Him. That's real people, real life, and real faith. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.